This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 12, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be here. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 38 today. So if you would turn there, I'm not putting it up on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, you can sneak out, pretend you're doing something else, and grab a Bible out front. But we are going to make sure that we got pages turning when we go through the Scriptures. One thing I wanted to just uh, say before we begin, um, as many of you know, uh, our brother John uh, Glover got promoted to glory um, some time ago, and yesterday was just an awesome memorial. And I dare I even call it a memorial, it was more of a worship service, and it was joyful and um, just incredibly God-glorifying and healing and beautiful, and so uh, if you missed it, too bad. If you were there, you know what I'm talking about. It was awesome, and I pray that every uh, funeral memorial that we have uh, as believers goes the same way, because it was just awesome. So, And Lois and her family are here today, and we're so glad that you guys are Genesis 38. Now, to begin just a little bit, um, as you well know, unless you've been in a hole somewhere, there's a lot probably to be confused by and concerned about in our world today. Uh, With the amount of information that we get inundated with through the number of different sources that can come through, we are inundated daily with reports of all things political, social, economic, protests, terrorist attacks, natural disasters, and any amount of time listening to that thing can be overwhelming. It's a lot of noise, a lot of scary noise, a lot of bad noise, and even if you're able to kind of live above the global noise, like, okay, I'm just going to pretend it's not there, live above it, get off Facebook, not read the news, whatever, you probably won't be able to ignore the same or at least some kinds of tragedies and brokenness just, just come into your own families and homes. It's not surprising when all of that happens because of either what we see in the world or just what we see in our own lives that we are apt and tempted to wonder, is there really a God in control of all this mess? Really? Because seems thing, they're pretty chaotic and God doesn't seem to be around. That's a fair and honest feeling to have. Now, Genesis chapter 8 is one of those chapters that is full of bad stuff, full of chaos. And some of the difficulty is that throughout it all, God is not real present, it seems. In fact, the only time he kind of shows up is to kill a couple guys who are wicked in his sight. But for the most part, For the majority of the time in this chapter, God is mysteriously absent even as other wicked things are going on. Like He'll stop these wicked guys, but He won't stop this wickedness. And it seems that no matter how hard we try, and I've tried a lot, perhaps you have as well, that God's ways are just really difficult to understand. Like I just can't quite comprehend God. And what what we expect to happen rarely seems to, and what we don't seems to quite often. And I think I'm resigned 
to believe what God says where it's, well, it's basically because I'm a man and I can't comprehend the ways of God. He's just too big. And just when I think I understand, oh, I see what you're doing, God. He's like, nope, you don't get it. And it goes a totally different direction. I appreciate the writings and teaching of Jerry Bridges. And he spoke a lot about trusting God and God's sovereignty. He said that God is never surprised and always in control. He is never, he says, reactive. He is always proactive. In other words, God doesn't respond to difficulty and hardship and tragedy like we do, where we make the best out of a bad situation. Ever said that? Ever thought that? Well, we'll just make the best out of a bad situation. Do you understand God doesn't function that way? That He knows before all things. He's proactive. Before He initiates, before He allows, permits, ordains, whatever word you like to use, before that adversity, He knows how He is going to use it for His good purposes, including our sin or the sin of others. That's sometimes hard to believe, especially if you yourself are guilty of much sin, which you are if you knew everything God knew and would be honest, or if there's been a lot of sin brought into your life by others. Really, God's proactive? He's ahead of that? You realize that God never, when things happen in your life or in the life of others or in the world, never goes, whoa! Never saw that coming. Man, I can't believe she did that. God never has that experience. He's always ahead. Genesis 37 to 50, where we're spending this big chunk of time as we close out Genesis, that's often identified as the story of Joseph, but it's probably more accurately described as the larger story of Jacob, for whom Joseph dominates. Within the story of Jacob, you have this beautiful story of Joseph, but then you also have Genesis 38 with a really ugly story of Judah and Tamar. Genesis 37, as we studied last week, it ended with Joseph in Egypt under Potiphar, having been sold into slavery by his brothers. And then, if you were to fast forward, jump across 38 where we're at, to 39, you will see it picks up with Joseph in Egypt working for Potiphar. And so, in the middle, you have this Genesis 38, this ugly story that reads like just a big interruption to what we really care about. Like, Joseph going along, like, and then, boom, Judah, horrible, terrible. All right, back to Joseph. And that's how we often read Genesis. We'll read it through and go, oh, that chapter 38's weird. And then, okay, here, back to the story. And we realize that God, God put it all in there, right? He, he put every word in there for us to learn and to grow and to, to have something about ourselves or himself revealed to us. Genesis 38 is an, it's an amazing chapter. The first 11 verses cover about 20 years of time. We don't think about that. Like, oh, just 11 verses, right? Like 11 days. Like 20 years of time. The back half of it, or more than half, 19 verses, about a year's worth of time. 
And so in this 20 years, you realize, and maybe you don't, so I'll tell you, that it took about 20 years to, for Joseph to rise from really Potiphar's house and then eventually in prison to the prince of Egypt. It took about 20 years of time. Okay? And so you have these stories going on that basically as Joseph is having this experience in Egypt, this is what's happening with Judah. They're very contrasting stories. One guy associates with foreign women while the other flees from them. One indulges in sexual immorality while the other resists it. One is a really horrible victimizer and the other is clearly a victim. One is judged by God and one is blessed by God. One is rightly accused for the bad things that they've done and one is falsely accused having not done a single bad thing. And as we read these stories, right, we always put ourselves in the best spots. We're like, that's right. I'm like faithful Joseph, suffering for the sins of others. But I will be faithful and I will trust these bad things have come into my life. And God, like we always are Joseph, but here's the reality of it, is that most of us will probably live lives closer to Judah. Who was very unfaithful. Who screwed up a lot. And it's easy, it seems, to like think, well, I see how God works through the faithfulness of lives like Joseph. That makes sense to me. But I think we struggle where we ought not to trust that actually God works even through lives like unfaithful Judah, basically despite us. Judah, in many ways, gives us a picture of someone who identifies as a child of God, enjoys some of the benefits of being part of the family of God, and yet he lives like a pagan only concerned for himself. And I fear that's become all too common here in our Christian world. But although we see God working clearly through faithfulness, we're also going to see God working despite unfaithfulness. And if nothing else, we learn two things. That first of all, sin is actually not great. It's not good. Though we're tempted to maybe believe that it is. And actually, maybe more importantly, there is no sin too great that God can't fix. Let's read Genesis 38, 1 through 11, and we'll see where we're going. It begins this way It happened at that time, and the time they're speaking of is really after, sometime after the selling of Joseph into slavery. But at that time, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. Where Judah, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. Now mind you, mom isn't having baby after baby after baby after baby like, okay, well, why? a lot of babies real quick. No, there's time going on there, right? Many years. So you see it's starting to increase the amount of time. Verse 6, it says, And Judah took a wife for Ur. So Ur at this point is not a toddler taking a wife. He is an older, at least a man old enough to marry. Time has passed. 
We took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It's an amazing verse. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Let's spend some time there. Judah, I think, gives us uh, a pretty good portrayal and a column as, as an unfaithful believer. And unfaithful believers are interesting. I, I find especially those who are hiding sin to be two things. One, they're incredibly hypocritical about their own sin. And two, they're super hypercritical about everyone else's. And you see that in Judah. Sadly, Judah's daily life and his spiritual life don't seem to intersect at all. He, in a very tangible way, claims to be different, but his life looks exactly the same as the world around him. And as I said, he gives us a picture of someone who identifies as a child of God, enjoys membership with the family, but basically lives like a pagan. And he does it in three different ways. Kind of three different ways characterize, really, this horrible dude who's supposed to be a child of God, it's supposed to be part of the family of God, and really is. First thing he does is Judah fights God's commands. What do you mean by that? Well, if we go back a little bit where we were last week, in Genesis 37, remember that Judah, along with his brothers, planned to kill their younger brother Joseph as he was coming up to see them. The eldest brother, Reuben, stopped it, he said, no, 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 don't kill him. Don't just slaughter him. Let's just put him in this pit over there. And he had planned to save him later, return him to their father, Jacob. Now, so that's what they did. They throw him in a pit. Reuben takes off. And, and Joseph is sitting in this pit without food or without water. And they're eating lunch. And he's yelling, I need, hey, guys, come on, let me out. Help me. And you think about, they really have no other plan at this point. Like, what are they going to just walk away from? He's going to die. They may have not murdered him, but they're going to allow him to die. And so the brothers are sitting there, and Judah's like, I got an idea. Judah, the ringleader. And he says, why would we just leave him in a pit here? Why would he even let him? Let's make some money off this thing. It's not going to profit us to have him just sit there. Even if we just punish him a little, we're not going to make anything. We could make out well on this, let's sell him into slavery. That's a couple different benefits. One, I put some money in my pocket, and two, he's gone. And so that's what he do. They see some Ishmaelites coming by, they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which is actually less than the going rate of probably about 30 shekels. Because what is Judah committed to, really? Getting rid of the dreamer making sure that the dreams that he has had don't come to pass. Well, 
Joseph didn't just concoct these dreams. He didn't just imagine these dreams. He had these dreams, and they were direct revelation from God about what was going to happen. And the brothers knew that. Judah knew that. And he didn't like God's plan. And so in resisting, really, I should say in punishing Joseph, he is really fighting against what God wanted to happen. He is refusing to submit to the authority of God. He is jumping on the throne, kicking God off and saying, I'm going to rearrange the pieces to make it go the way I want because I don't like the way it's going, God. Rejects authority. It's a terrible sign for so-called believers to begin to reject God's authority in terms of rejecting his revelation and his word. Don't like it, God. But he goes further. You see, in the beginning of Genesis 38, not only does he reject God's commands and his decrees and his revelation, he actually despises the promises that he's made. Soon after, who knows exactly when, that they sold Joseph into slavery, we see that Judah separates from his brothers. He isolates himself in a very real way from his family. He moved away south to be closer to the world. And while there, he hooked up with his buddy Hira and enjoyed the life of a bachelor. And as he did that, he noticed the Canaanite women. And he thought, I want one. And he married a Canaanite woman whose name is, at least at this point, not given. Had three sons with her. And it's very similar in a very, I think, real way of, of what Esau did. Remember, Esau despised his birthright, rejected his birthright for a bowl of soup. Esau is the one who went and married the kinds of women that his father said, don't marry. Essentially, Judah moved away from the presence of God. And in marrying a Canaanite, he despised the very promises of God about the future family, about the offspring that would come. He ultimately didn't believe God's promises. He didn't believe happiness came from the way God said it would be and should be. His security didn't come from believing God. And so he abandoned his presence and he despised his promises and began to work for his own. But that's not the only thing Judah did. He ends up ignoring God's warnings. And God gives him some really explicit warnings. See, he didn't just fight his commands. He didn't just despise his promises. When his older son, Ur, was of age, he finds a wife for him named Tamar. And we see Judah didn't really fear God because as Ur lives on, he was a wicked guy. We're not told how wicked he is. But we are told that he was so wicked, God kills him. God puts him to death. We're not told how he put him to death, but as it's recorded that God put him to death, not like he fell in a hole, he was kicked by a mule, he whatever, it was God killed him. So I don't know if it was a bolt of lightning, right? He's walking along, gone. Or if he's just like, hey, Stop breathing. Like, I don't know what it was, but it was clear God killed him. 
This is the first individual that God directly kills since the flood. And at the flood, when God looked at the world and he saw that men were wicked and they thought about evil continually, everything they did, everything they thought was evil, that probably describes earth. Now, you think Judah go, hmm, that was a strange death. What are you trying to say, God? Nope, he doesn't. Seems to ignore it. Talks to his son, Onan. Onan is his second son. And culturally, the next brother was responsible to, to really help conceive an heir for the deceased. He wouldn't necessarily have to marry the widow, but ensure that her husband's inheritance was protected. So, Onan took on his responsibility, or so it seemed. But it says that he knew the offspring would not be his. It wouldn't really be his child. Well, why would they say that? Well, the truth was, if there was an offspring, that son would be considered the firstborn and receive the double blessing from Judah. So Judah, dad, has three sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah. Ur's gone. So Onan's like, we need to get a descendant for him or an heir for him. But if he's the heir, he gets the firstborn. But if I don't give him an heir, I'm the firstborn. And therefore, I get the double blessing. So you're like, what is Onan think? He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about, well, I should do, I could do this, but if I do this, it works against my pocketbook, so I'm not going to do this. And so, he doesn't stop and say, hey, I don't feel good about this, I don't feel right about it. No, he goes ahead with it. He goes ahead and uses Tamar, and he simply prevents her from conceiving a child. What we see is a guy who's seeking pleasure and refusing responsibility. Onan is the second man, therefore, that God says, you're wicked, kills him. Now, that's again a pretty bold warning. So it seems like they probably maybe die the same way. There's no reports of weird things. It's like, uh, Ur just got struck by lightning. Wow, really? That's weird. Hey, Onan just got struck by lightning. What? Really? Again, not moved towards God, not cautious about what's going on. Is, is God trying to get my attention? Nope. In fact, he begins to take kind of control of his own life, and he's like, yeah, Tamar, why don't you go back home and go live with your dad, and when my youngest son is old enough, then you can marry him. <laughs> sure, right? Lies to her, because that never comes to pass. Now, Judah gives us a picture of, I think, an incredibly sinful child of God who knows God's Word and yet rejects His ways, despises His promises, ignores His warnings. And as you read this, and maybe you don't experience this, but as I read this, the fact that Judah never really gets caught doing all this. Like, he didn't get caught. I mean, eventually the story unfolds, but he didn't get caught 
hiding the death of Joseph or the sale of Joseph, I should say. He didn't get caught you know, in his deception yet. And when people don't get caught like that, you're tempted to believe that, hey, you know, he got away with it. Maybe God just doesn't care. Maybe, you know, it's a little bit of sin. No one knows. It's a private deal. Didn't really hurt anybody. Don't believe that. It's my love for Christ and it's my love for you as my brothers and sisters that I warn you. Anyone here who is hiding sin to confess and come into the light. Don't live under the delusion that your personal sin is going to remain private forever. And this is not a sermon to tell you that your little sin is preventing you from all kinds of blessing. It's to say that there's no such thing as a little sin. It's to say that your pursuit of self-glory, that your coveting and your envy for what you don't have, your worship of comfort, your refusal to sacrifice, your religious piety, your uncontrolled anger, your elitist pride, your refusal to lead as the loving husband God's called you to be or to follow as the respectful, awesome wife God has called you to be. Your refusal to obey your parents, kids. Your gossiping tongue, your refusal to love or even know your neighbor, your unwillingness to forgive and to remain in resentment, your hidden addictions you think no one knows about, your overall discontentment, your lukewarm devotion to God as you have your passionate devotion to all kinds of other idols, it makes God angry. And He knows. And though many will want to be angry with me for like, oh, I can't believe he just said that. What I've said or how I've said it, I plead with you to repent before you destroy yourself or your family. I ask you to consider the story of a guy named Achan. Takes place in Joshua chapter 7. And by all appearances, he was great leader, great brother, great husband, great father, and he participated in helping Israel sack Jericho. They were marching around Jericho and the walls fall and they defeat this huge city. And after the battle, God had warned them and he ignored those warnings about taking certain things from the ruins. He's like, don't take those things. Okay, sure, except Achan. Achan took those things that had been devoted. And they go on to the next battle, and because he had this hidden sin, no one knew about, Israel is defeated. And Joshua goes to God and says, what's going on? We said, you said we were your people. You told us to go against this city. He's like, there's sin in the camp. Deal with it. So he goes back, and he tells the people, there's sin in the camp somewhere. And Achan's not like, yeah, it's me. Sorry, I didn't mean to get everyone killed. It's me. Nope. They draw lots, and until the finger's pointed at him, okay, it's me. And in the end, you know what happened to Achan and his entire family because of his sin? 
They were killed. The truth is you may be able to hide or ignore how your sin is ravaging you personally, but eventually it's going to come to light and we'll all see it and how it ravages your family. And that happens to Judah. Let's read verse 12 all the way to 26 as the story begins to unfold. It says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and the, his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was growing up, or had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, Well, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Well, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, well, what pledge? What am I going to give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, uh, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned at the stake. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Now, the sermon is titled, Thread of Hope. And I know in that first part, you're like, yeah, that was real hopeful, thanks. Right? But I, it does seem, and I do believe, that hope is brightest when things are darkest. And as Judah continues to hide his sin, things go from bad to worse. They get darker. As we saw, he never makes good on his promise, and she lives covered in widow garb as a widow for, it seems like, several years. But after Judah's wife dies, his time of mourning ends, he decides to go see his old friend, Hira, at the time of shearing. Now Tamar hears about this, and she immediately takes off her widow's clothes and she puts on a full disguise as a prostitute. A cult prostitute. You see, 
Canaanite culture utilized religious prostitution as a way of promoting agricultural fertility. And so devotees of the mother goddess, whether it be Ishtar or not, would reside at these shrines or different places dressed in the veil as the symbolic bride of the god Baal. And men would come and visit the shrine and use their services of these cult prostitutes prior to an important season or shearing. So essentially, Judah's acting like a pagan and Tamar's dressing like one. And Judah sees her, propositions this woman who he believes is this prostitute, and she begins to negotiate. And Judah says, well, I'll pay you a young goat for your services, but I'm going to have to give you an IOU because I don't have the goat with me. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to need some collateral. I'm going to need some promise that you're actually going to pay. And so, he has around his neck a cord with an insignia that would sometimes be a cylinder of different things. It would be used to sign contracts, legally bind him to different things. And then he had a staff, which pretty much had his name carved in it. Okay? It's like, well, I'll take the signet and I'll take the staff. And he didn't go, hmm, this is maybe put me in a compromise. He's like, here you go. Okay? So he pretty much hands his credit card and his driver's license over to a stranger. That's really what he does. Okay? He enjoys her company and he leaves and later sends his friend slash stooge back with the young goat to get his stuff back. And she's not there. When he comes back to report like, uh, I didn't find no cult prostitute and no one has ever seen one there. He's like, Ah, let her, let her have it. We're going to get embarrassed by this whole thing. You keep going back there. Hey, got this young goat for uh, Judah who was with this prostitute. If you, like, let's just, let's just move on, right? So he's hiding again. And three months later, Tamar starts to show. And people start to report, hey, um, the girl who's in the widow garb, who's not married to anybody, isn't supposed to be, uh, she's pregnant. So she has been clearly immoral, and Judah's like, what? Let's burn her. Now, that was an extreme level of, there was a, a death punishment, but that was a whole nother level that actually was reserved for daughters of priests, which kind of shows you how Judah views himself, Right? a little bit higher than he actually is. And she comes out, and she's like, well, the man who got me pregnant, it's like, you know, it's just tense, like, dun-dun-dun, is this guy. Credit card, driver's license, who are they? Right? He's like, oh. And what does he say? I'm wrong. You're right. And he's humbled. Now, some people interestingly, make a real hero out of Tamar. Some make a hero out of Judah, interestingly. But many make a hero out of Tamar. And in truth, even though Judah's like, man, you're more righteous than I. Well, he, she may have been more righteous than Judah, but she certainly wasn't righteous. But if just for a minute, if you'd allow me to, to entertain an idea that what if Tamar had no other choice. 
What if, or at the very least, we acknowledge that Tamar was a victim who was wronged by her brother-in-law, wronged by her father-in-law. She was a victim. That, that something was sinfully withheld from her and technically her sin was an act of faith. Let's just maybe. I know it seems like, ah, oh, it's a stretch. But I... As I think about that, I'm, I'm always left to wonder, like, what about Tamar? How did she feel? What did she think about herself from that point forward? What did others think about her? Like, she would be forever remembered as the one who had to pretend to be a prostitute in order to get what she rightly deserved. Now that must have been a pretty hard stigma to live with. You can imagine people, oh, there she goes. Man, can you believe her? It's highly unlikely they talked about Judah that way. Publicly, she would have been despised, and maybe privately she may feel kind of hopeless, guilty, ashamed, believing that my sin is just too great. Even though I have these kids, man, what I had to do to get, I, I just, I am just too ugly. Too, too broken for God to use. And I think some of us sit in that place. And we wonder, like, really? Could, could God really fix this mess that I have so messed up? Can he really work through unfaithfulness? Is he that faithful? I think the answer will blow your mind. Let's just read these last verses and we'll connect the dots. Verse 27 says this, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand. Yeah, that's weird, right? Put out a hand, the midwife took a scarlet thread, ties it on, says, you're the firstborn. Then the hand disappears. It says he drew back his hand. Behold, his brother came out. Imagine that wrestling match, right? Like, firstborn, I don't think so. And then diving out. And she said, whoa, what a breach you have made for yourself. And she called him Perez, which means breach. And afterward, his brother came out, the real firstborn, with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And again, you read that, and you go, yeah, that's weird. I don't know. I don't know. That's a weird way to end the story. All right, let's get on to Joseph. Right? I know we all read it that way. It's like, okay, God put it there. Like, why? Why is it there? It's got to have some connection the message of hope comes through the birth of these children. And I don't mean like, oh, she's got kids, so everything's better. Like, no. No, 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 no. She has these twins, Perez and Zerah. And you see the whole tension between the older and the younger, which is a consistent theme throughout Genesis. Where the younger is always ruling, if you will, the older. You saw it with Jacob and Esau. You see it here with these two sons. And you're going to see it with Joseph and his brothers. 
But as the generations go on and children are born, both Perez and Zerah have sons. And Zerah, the firstborn by an arm, has a son named Zabdi, who has a son named Carmi, who has a son named Achan. Remember Achan? I already shared Achan's story that comes from Joshua chapter 7. So Achan, the great-grandson of Red Thread Zerah, and his entire household ultimately comes to an end because of this hidden sin and idolatry. What we see is that his sin destroys those he loves. And we learn that, you know what? Sin is not great. And as we sin at times and we don't get caught and lightning doesn't strike us or tempt to believe, like, well, not that bad. Got what I want. Like, no, it is not great. And it leads to death. But let me show you just how amazing this God of life is and how in control of every little detail he is. See, through the line of the younger Perez, God demonstrates that he is faithful. Dare I say that he proves that there is no sin too great that he can't redeem. And just as God killed the household of the red thread boy, he saves one by a red thread in the same book of Joshua. You see, when spies first came to Jericho to assess what the city was like, how strong it was, how big its walls were, they were helped by another prostitute named Rahab. And because of her faithfulness to hide God's people, her entire household out of the entire city of Jacob is the only one that is saved when Israel comes through and decimates it. And ironically, or providentially, Rahab is saved because she hangs a red cord from her window and no one harms her. You go, wow. Oh, but it gets better. Perez, the second-born son, the guy that forced his way out to be first, he has a son named Hezron, who has a son named Ram, who has a son named Amiadab, who has a son named Nashon, who has a son named Salmon, who marries a woman named Rahab. There is no sin too great. But it gets better. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins with the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of two that's in the Gospels. Read it carefully. Because genealogies are one of those things that we tend to skip over as well. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. We've heard of both of them. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah. But wait, Jacob had 
twelve sons. Okay, Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, may have heard of her. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. See, Matthew chapter 1 gives us the royal genealogy of Jesus Christ. And included in that genealogy is a horrible man named Judah, and a daughter-in-law prostitute named Tamar, and another prostitute named Rahab, who eventually gives birth to Boaz, who marries a pagan Moabite named Ruth, whose grandson was King David, whose line eventually leads to our true Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. There is no sin too great. And while many of us hope to have very boring testimonies, or maybe exciting testimonies of faithfulness like Joseph, I think and sense that most of us are probably going to have stories like Judah, where we fail, where we make big mistakes and spectacular sins. And though we can understand, like, okay, I see how God works through faithfulness. We struggle to believe, but we ought not that God can work despite unfaithfulness. Because what we see in this very big story is that light comes from darkness, and beauty comes from ashes, and life comes from death. And our own Lord and Savior came through generations of sinners who screwed up in spectacular ways. The Holy One, right? The sinless one came through the unholy and sinful, proving that no matter what we've done, no matter what has been done to us, no matter how we have at this point rejected God's commands, despised His promises, ignored His warnings, wasted our lives, or even hurt and destroyed the lives of others, there's nothing beyond redemption for those willing to repent and believe. Sin is not great. The cross shows us that. It required the Son of God shedding His blood to fix it. But that is the Son of God willingly going there, reminding us that there is no sin too great. In the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's not merely this small thread of hope. Dare I say, there is a vast, great, or as my kids would say, humongous, gigantic, jumbo amount of hope that comes from a thread of of faith. And this table reminds us of that. This is why we come, because at this table, we come without fear. We come with confidence into the presence of the Lord. We come knowing that we can confess our sins, and, and He will remove that guilt that we have been hiding. Because when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we come, many of us, to the table going, man, I've just been hurt by others, and I just live in shame. 
And Jesus says, I know. Let me cleanse you of that. Let me free you of that. We come to the table and we honestly acknowledge in our own lives and the lives of others that sin is not great. But we also experience, if you will, that Jesus is greater than any sin I've ever committed or any sin ever committed against me. And in that, I will trust. Let's pray.